Come on. How are y'all doing this morning? Well, great. Hopefully y'all are filled with turkey, ham, and et cetera, you know, from this crazy Thanksgiving week. I love Thanksgiving to be able to spend time with friends and family and, most importantly, just good food. You know, so much good food that I had to do some push-ups this morning so y'all focus on my biceps and not my stomach. You know, and so um, hopefully I had a great time. How many of y'all went Black Friday shopping? Come on. All right, Pastor Ben, you see all these hands? These are the gifts you should be expecting from these people. Some great gifts. You've got Melania, just so, just so you, didn't, you, know, you didn't see her, so I'll just give her a call out. <laughs> but the thing is that today we're actually closing our series in Philippians. And one thing I love as we've been going through this four-week series is really Paul's heart for the, the church in Philippi, like how he's writing in prison from a jail cell, but yet there's contentment, there's joy, there's so many things that he's writing with through one of the most difficult circumstances that you can possibly be in. And so one of the things that Pastor Ben talked about a little bit last week was contentment. You know, he said that contentment is first learned, and then it is experienced. I think it was perfect timing because, like, some of y'all on December 25th, y'all are going to open up a gift, and y'all are not going to be very content, you know, looking to see that the very thing that you got is not what you had on your Christmas list, right? And so I think it was great because now God, uh, Ben has already prepared your heart for what you may or may not get. And so, but no, honestly, that, that message actually really spoke a lot to me uh, and really resonated with me that despite my circumstance, that I can be content, not in my circumstance, but more so to be able to rejoice in the Lord and the one who actually can give me peace in moments of trouble. So today, we're going to just backtrack a little bit. Today, we're going to be covering Philippians chapter 4, verses 1, well, 2 through 9. And so this is what it reads. It says, I entreat Eodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you to, your also true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worth, worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Let us pray this morning. Father, I ask that you speak through me, uh, so that your word and your son can be glorified. Allow our, our minds to, to receive what you have for us in our hearts in order for your word to take root. Jesus, we love you. We praise your holy name. Amen. Well, Pastor Ben gave me this, this huge task this morning to, to cover these, these verses. And the reason why it's a little bit of a challenge is because of the way that it was actually written. There's only a couple times in Scripture when Paul is writing that he writes in this way. And this is what he does. He just piles on exhortation and various virtues. And so because of this, commentators have outlined these particular Scriptures a little differently than most of Paul's writings. He does this in Romans 12.9 as well as 1 Thessalonians 
Galatians 5.19, and then here in Philippians. So these are these rapid fire points in which Paul is addressing the church of Philippi. It's as if he has this sense of urgency to get this message across. You know, as we look back, that he's actually in the jail cell writing this. So it's like he's hurry up trying to get this message across so this church can receive this exhortation so they can actually hear what he has to say. And be giving these, um, the way that it was written, I've outlined this message in, in four different ways, and were four different points. And it's, these are actually challenges that Paul gives to the church in Philippi. And this section might as well be entitled, Stuff That Christians or Believers Deal With. Because this church in Philippi was an established church. They were over, almost 10 years old, and so these are people who've been serving God faithfully. And yet they are dealing with issues. They're dealing with problems. And I don't know about you, like, man, I've been serving the Lord for about 10 years, and, man, I still have things that I'm dealing with, things that God has to work in my life, things that I have to submit to his authority, things that I have to die to myself and say, Lord, can you help me in this area of my life? I'm immature over here, or I need to be able to be more vocal over here, but yet the same thing's happening here in this church. And Paul speaks about these serious struggles that these Christians are encountering in a fallen world. Like, man, we live in a fallen, broken world. Like, we are awaiting for the Prince of Peace to come and redeem his church so we will not have to endure and see things as they are, but we can see things restored and glorified. And this is some of the things that he's going through. As he's uh, writing this letter, dispute, joylessness, lack of graciousness, anxiety, and impure thoughts. See, the Philippian church was a great church. It was an amazing church. But yet even great churches with talented, amazing believers within it still struggle with sin. And they, they need God's word to come in and to correct them. See, let's not forget that this church is multi-generational, multi-ethnic. You know, they have people from all different backgrounds in this church, and they're dealing with these problems. And the thing is, this church, is, it's luminous. It's exactly what we see here. There's people from all different backgrounds here to serve the Lord, to worship him. And Paul starts off in verse 2 by saying, pursue like-mindedness, which is our first point this morning. He says, I entreat Eodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together, with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. See, Paul makes this final call to unity, and it's pretty obvious as we're reading this that there is a disagreement with two women in the church, and they're not just two people who are part of the church. These are actually two leaders in the church. Man, this is crazy. Like, think about, like, two leaders are having a disagreement. Like, man, that doesn't happen at all, right? Like, man, like, I don't argue with my spouse. Like, man, Tori, you know, there's never been a moment, her and I have never, you know, had a moment to argue. No, it's like, man, this happens. And we see it then, and we actually still see it today. So what's so striking about this is that Paul 
It's so clear and direct. Like, man, he just goes straight at it. He makes it clear to them, and he makes it clear to the church what needs to be done. And I love what he says in this moment. He says that I urge, I plead. That's what it means. Like, I'm pleading with you to come in agreement with the Lord. Can you imagine this? Like, as they're reading this letter, as the church is reading this letter out loud, you have Eodia and Syntyche sitting there. And this is what they hear. I urge Eodia and I urge Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Talk about awkward. <laughs> you know, talk about being awkward because now you're being called out amongst a multitude. You know, and like, you know, slowly everyone's eyes turn to look at them. And then I can just imagine them just sinking in their chair out of embarrassment. Like, man, they just called me out. They put me on blast in front of everyone. But this is a serious for Paul. The reason why it's so serious for him, because the thing is, is that he loves the church and he loves them and he wants to see them pursue God in righteousness so that the gospel could be proclaimed, so the gospel could be furthered in the church of Philippi. So he tells them, he instructs them to, to come in agreement, come together and solve this, have like-mindedness. And the one thing I love is that like Paul is smart, like this man is so smart, he doesn't take a side. Like, man, like, he doesn't take a side of either women. He just said, hey, I urge you, I plead with you to come in agreement in the Lord. To come in agreement with the Lord and resolve these differences. And the thing is that he points them to Jesus, which is the, always the resolution for any conflict, is to point people back to Jesus, who is the center of all things. It's because of, because of the Lord's power. It's because the commonality that we have in Christ that we are willing to submit to God that can resolve such things. And this is what agreement looks like. It's not saying, hey, you throw away all sound doctrine and you just forget everything. You know, you just come in agreement of everything. No, he doesn't say change your preferences. He says, no, have Christ-centeredness. Have the mind of Christ. I come in agreement in that and saying, hey, ladies, if you would come in agreement in that, then you can continue to pursue what God has called you to do in the church in your calling. And I love um, Pastor Ben spoke on this a couple of weeks ago. It's Philippians 2, 1, and 11. And this verse here really is amazing when we're thinking about resolving disagreements. It says that if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort, from love and participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord of one mind. I think it's great that like Paul's already just addressing something that he's already known has been happening, and he's saying, hey, remember this. Like, man, I've already spoke to you about this. Use that as a way to resolve this conflict. And the thing is, like, if, if you have, like, been in disagreement, and, um, you know, it's, it's not fun, but the thing is, is that sometimes, like, I'm like this, it's like, man, it's no one's business. It's no one's business what I'm going through, who I'm arguing with, what's happening, but the reality, it, it's the church's business, because you're a part of the body. You're part of one body, and one part of the body infects the entire body. A couple years ago when I lived in Austin, I worked at a hospital, and one of my duties that I had um, as a clinical assistant is that I would pick up patients downstairs and, and get them prepped and ready for surgery. 
And I remember this one distinct case as I'm pulling him up and I'm reading in the chart and the nurse is telling me, hey, Austin, um, this young man, or actually this other, he's a young man, but um, this gentleman ended up getting a wound on his finger. It was something minor, but yet like this bacteria went in and it was a flesh-eating bacteria for something so small and to the point now that he had to get his, his hand amputated. The thing is, is that like something as small as a small minor disagreement can lead to something bigger and can infect the entire body. See, the church on earth should actually reflect the church that is in heaven. And it's sad when two believers cannot come in agreement on non-eternal issues. So let me ask you three questions this morning as we're talking about like, you know, disagreement. We're talking about how Paul comes in to try to settle this. Do you see yourself as a threat to unity in your church? Because you should, and, and I should as well, because the reality is that all, any member can be a threat to unity. I mean, there's some days that I feel great, and I'm like, man, for Jesus, I'm talking about unity and trying to get people to come along, and some days I'm just not with it, and I just need someone to, to come speak to me and remind me who I am. Secondly, will you ask for help when you're in conflict? Will you ask, would you invite someone in to help you resolve and bring resolution to some conflict? And lastly, are you prepared to help others who need help in conflict? Because sometimes you can't answer or help your own situation. You have to be able to help um, other people. So further disunity actually prevents us from operating in the mission that God has for us. And more important, the vision the church has. See, petty differences really take up a lot of time, like time that can actually be used for reaching people with the gospel. I love what it says in Mark. Mark 3.25 says this. It says, and if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. That we need to come together in unity because the reality is everything outside of these walls is falling apart. And people are looking for a hope, and the agreement we have in the Lord to stand together will help people see the power of God and how he operates in us. See, our unity and our joy are found in Christ. When you get the gospel, you get joy. When you focus on the gospel, you get unity. See, another common struggle um, for most people, especially Christians, is ma- maintaining the joy that God offers. Like, man, I don't wake up every day singing praises to God. Some days I do, some days I don't. Some days, you know, I let my phone determine how I feel that day, from what message, from what, you know, how many likes I got, or whatever else. Well, this is what Paul says. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice in verse 4. See, Paul doesn't just say it once, he says it twice, and the thing is that he sandwiches this verse with this command to rejoice. And the thing is, this this church in Philippi, they were struggling to maintain their joy, and they experienced God, and they experienced his power, and they experienced so many things that God had to offer, but yet they were struggling in this moment to really have joy, you know? What about you this morning? Is that something that you're struggling with? It's like, man, I don't know how to maintain 
the joy. I love what George Mueller says. He says, the first great and primary business every day was to have my soul happy in the Lord. Like I said, because we don't wake up ready to sing praises to God. Like, man, I have to remind myself what I'm grateful for to position myself back in a place of gratitude, back in a place of reverence to say, God, you are worthy. God, I need more of you today. And there's a lot of things that rob us of joy. One of those things is anxiety, which we'll talk about in in verse 6, but there's doubt. There's loss of a loved one. There's work. There's disputes. There's illness. There's relational differences. And there's numerous other things that could come and rob joy. But, you know, there's there's also moments that we can actually misplace joy. Like, I mean, I can have my joy in the wrong things. Like here in America, especially in Texas, man, the bigger, the better, right? The bigger truck, the bigger house, the bigger church, the biggest stake, right? The bigger, the better. But what we really need is a bigger vision of God. We really need a bigger vision of God to see him magnified to the point in which we get to see all of him. And even the Christian servants, the missionaries that Jesus sent off, the 72 missionaries that he sent off, had this same misplacing of joy. And we read that here in Luke 10, 17. It says that they came back to Jesus with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons submit to us. But it says, then Jesus rebuked them. He said, don't rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names is written in heaven. See, don't derive joy from things like your job, your accolades, how much money you make, how big of a house you have, all those things. Don't compare it to having a relationship with Christ. And more importantly, that your names are written in the book of life. So you'll always lack joy focusing on yourself, looking at your calendar, looking at what's bothering you, what's going on in your life. And the thing is, that would always rob you of joy. But the secret to joy is this. It's Jesus, others, and then yourself. If you have those things in that order, then you will maintain the joy that God has for you in your life. That you put Jesus first, other people, and then lastly, yourself. See, Paul, he just didn't just talk about it. He just didn't write about it. He actually lived it. He is a man who's in jail, in prison in Rome, which is one of the lavishest places in the time. They have the live parties. They have um, theaters. They have so many amazing things within the city. But yet the happiest, most joyful person is in a jail cell. And what Paul does as he's writing this is that he reminds us that joy isn't derived from our comfortable circumstances, but it's in communion with Christ. It's in relationship with Jesus. So this communion not only brings you joy, but it also relieves anxiety in your life. That's why Paul in verse 6 talks about that through prayer we can have our anxiety removed. And he says this, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Like, what 
is the, the church in Philippi anxious about? Like, man, what's going on that Paul has to remind them not to be anxious? I mean, maybe it is, it's the, the threats that they're getting from um, outside the church. Maybe it's the conflict that's happening within the church. I mean, they're concerned for Paul who's in jail, who, which they don't know what is going to happen to him. And not only that, they're representative Ephroditus. Epaphroditus, um, he almost passed away in giving, you know, the letter and the gifts to Paul. And lastly, I mean, God's provision. So Paul is reminding them of these things like, hey, don't be worried. Don't be anxious about these things. But that sounds a lot about some of the things that we're anxious about today, right? Like some external opposition, like, man, what's going to happen in politics? What's going to happen in the economy Maybe some things, situations within your, your household, some internal conflict or internal things happening. Or maybe concern for someone else, a family member or a friend. Or lastly, maybe even provision. Like, oh my gosh, we're on our third kid. How am I going to provide for this baby? You know, or I'm a college student. Like, man, hopefully, you know, fastball gives me enough money next semester because, like, man, I'm like to the ends meet. I barely got enough in my bank account right now. Do you live with this self-defeating, persistent thoughts of worry? So this is the very thing that Paul, as well as Jesus, is talking about. Like, this very thing is, is sin. And the reason why it's sin, because it's a form of, of paganism. Because the thing is, you're living a life as if God doesn't exist. That he's not sovereign, that he's not for you, that he doesn't have a plan for you, that he cannot provide for you. See, our worry tells us that. It tells us those very things. And, and anxiety, it's a joy killer. Like, but you cannot be anxious and still be joyful. And not only that, anxiety makes you self-absorbed, meaning that like, you're just inward focused. You're just focused about your problems, your needs. I mean, can someone please pray for me? God, like, I know you see me struggling. Please, someone help me. See, worry distracts you and keeps you away from the mission of God. Not only that, Paul says that it robs you of peace. And then, you know, not only that, anxiety has, there's like physical things that anxiety brings, right? Unusual mood swings, irritability, you know, a loss of weight, a gain of weight in some occasions, exhaustion, fatigue, muscle tension. And some people recommend different things like, hey, you know, a massage, get a massage and you should be all right, or aromatherapy, or, you know, incense, or rub some lavender around your head and around your muscles, and maybe that would work, you know? And some of y'all have Apple Watches, so it's like, man, the breathing app is like, take a deep breath for a minute, you know? And so it's like all these things which are great places and things to do, but they cannot take place of what God says. They can't take place of what he tells us to do. And even though God's grace covers these things and these evidence of things to relieve anxiety and stress, but they don't replace who God is and what he can do. So that's why um, Jesus talks about in Matthew, he says, Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you, what you will eat or drink, nor about your body. What you will put on is not life more than food and the body more than clothing. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow or reap, nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more valuable than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? 
thing is that we don't need to worry about anything, but we need to pray about everything. And the problem is, is that I don't even pray about everything. Like, man, I'm being convicted even right now as I'm speaking these words because I only pray when things are going wrong, when things are shaking my worldview, when everything around me is shifting and I'm like, man, I need help right now. I was like, man, let me pray right now. <laughs> and the thing is, the Bible says, and Paul's saying here is that, hey, don't pray about every bad thing, but pray about everything. Pray about everything. D.A. Carson says this. He says, I have yet to meet a chronic warrior who enjoys an excellent prayer life. I mean, I don't know about you, but when I'm worried, I am not praying. Like, I'm telling everyone else, you know, I might be texting folks. And there's so many different things going on in my mind because my mind is fully, is completely saturated with fear and doubt and worry. So prayer is like the last thing on my list. But yet, the thing is, the Bible is, makes it very clear. Like, it's one of the simple disciplines. Like, hey, just pray about it. Like, invite God into your solution. How about that? How about you just invite the God who created all things, who has all provision, into your solution? And I love what the, the end of verse 6 says. It says this. It says, um, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer, supplication, with thanksgiving. What he's saying is like, hey, when you pray, when you bring a request known to God, like, hey, don't come whining and complaining. Like, man, God, like, man, I've been praying for this for like six months, God. Like, what are you doing? Like, do you have a back order? Like, what's happening? Like, you know, what's happening? You know, it's, that's the thing. It's like you don't come to God complaining, but with thanksgiving. With a heart to say, God, hey, Lord, thank you so much. Because I remember the person I was, and I remember the person that I am today because of what you've done in my life. That I'm not going to fail to neglect how good you are and the promises that you bring. And sometimes that's me. Like, I focus and I neglect the God who delivered me from all the, the recklessness that I was a part of. And look at the great promise that follows verse 6 and verse 7. It says, In the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. I mean, that is an amazing promise that the peace of God. And the thing is, that in the Bible, there's, they actually talk about three types of peace. There's one, it's, it's the peace from God, in which Paul introduces a lot of the letters. This is just a reminder that peace comes from God. And then there's peace with God, meaning that, like, man, we are at peace with God. Only when you put your faith in Jesus, the person who died for your sin, that you can have peace with God. Because he's the only way in order for you to completely be called a son and not an enemy it's when you put your trust in Jesus and you have peace with God. And lastly, what Paul is talking about is the peace of God. It's, this is the type of peace that God has. Like if there's any being that has complete peace in the universe, it's God. <laughs> it is God on his throne as he is being worshipped by angels. He has complete peace. He's not worrying about oil prices. He's not worrying about your husband or your wife. He's not worrying about your, your problems, those, your provision. He knows that he's, he's at complete peace, that he's able to really answer all of those things. Spurgeon defines it like this. He says, the unruffled serenity of the infinitely happy God, the eternal composure of the absolutely well-contented God. 
And that peace can be ours. And now that, that verse 7 says that this peace will surpass all understanding, meaning that you're not going to be able to comprehend this peace. Like you can try to explain it, but in reality, you can only experience it. Like, man, Paul can talk about this peace as he's in prison, but he's like, man, you, you actually have to experience this peace that God brings into your life. And what I love about this is that is this is that it's not only talking about the worldly man, the person who may not know Jesus, that you they are not going to understand it. No, even the person who knows Jesus will not be able to comprehend this type of peace. Because this type of peace is only experienced. Verse 7 says that this peace will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. This word guard means military action, that, that, that this peace is going to guard your heart and your mind, which is so great because sometimes I need my mind and guard harder from what's coming in. And this is how Paul, he does this and he says this, he said that the peace of, that it brings you peace in mind, and next he talks about where do you put your peace, where do you put your mind after you receive this peace, and this is the last thing he addresses in verses 8 through 9. The Christian thought life. And he talks about thinking on praiseworthy things. As he says, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. And what you have learned and what you have received and heard. Enemy, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. He says, much of the Christian life comes down to our thought life, right? Like what we start thinking about. And this is why in Romans it says um, to be being transformed by the renewing of your mind. In 2 Corinthians 10, 5 says that to take every thought captive and bring it to the obedience of Christ. And even King David in the Old Testament says this. He says, God, search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my concerns. See if there is any offense offensive way in me, lead me in the everlasting way. So David knew that real change starts and it involves in one's thoughts. In the Sermon on the Mount, as Jesus is preaching, in one of his well-known sermons, he addresses the adulterer, adulterer as well as the murderer. He says, hey, if you lustfully look upon a woman, then you're already committed adultery. If you have anger in your heart, then you're already committed murder. Because he knows that your thought, as that seed gets planted, eventually it will provoke an action. So what we think actually matters more than we think. Sometimes um, I have to line up my thoughts and what I say to what verse 8 says and say, is this really honoring God? Is this pure? Is this praiseworthy? Is this commendable? And sometimes we have to surrender our thoughts to Christ today or prevent us from uh, really separating ourselves from Jesus. And as we meditate on these things, on these things that, that Paul is talking about here in Philippians, that we should remember that there is hope we have in Christ. There is this hope that we have in him that Jesus never broke any of these commands, but he actually brought a solution to them. 
I mean, he brought life. He brought joy. He gave us the gift of salvation. And because of that, we can rejoice. Because of that, we can give praise to him. Because of that, we can be excited as we're entering in this Christmas season. Because we're being reminded that the Savior has already come. And because he's come, that we are delivered. And because of that, that we are called sons and heirs of Christ. Jesus never did any of breaking any of these things. And he removed all barriers, fear, anxiety, depression. And he grants us a new mind. He grants us a new mind to see things the way he sees things. So this morning, let's look to the Savior for his righteousness and for for a daily renewal so we can imitate him, not just here in these walls, but outside these walls, because people need to hear the God that we serve and the freedom that he brings and the joy that he gives us and the, the peace that he gives that surpasses all understanding. And this is what Paul says. He says, hey, if you do these things, if you do these things, then the peace of God will be with you. That the peace of God will be with you.